good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. I want to open this morning with a verse from Hebrews chapter 2. We've been looking at the book of Romans. We've seen justification by faith alone. We've seen the means by which that comes, which is ultimately through the one righteous act of Christ Jesus. And this morning, what it is my hope that we do is that we see that one righteous act filled full. What does, what did, and what will that one righteous act ultimately bring about? And, when I, start, and I want to start with this from Hebrews 2 because I think that it will frame our conversation this morning pretty well. Hebrews chapter 2, really starting in verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And I want you to hear the language of this because essentially what's being argued is that those of us who have been bought by the blood of Jesus think upon death in a very distinct way because it is no longer something that has a true and lasting snare over us. Instead, it seems from this verse verse, that it is through the death of Christ that death died. That for us, death no longer means what what it once did. And we think of this from time to time. And even a few months ago, I wrote an article about death and the whole premise of it was that it's normal, but it's not natural. And for the Christian, that is almost doubly true because it no longer was, it no longer is what it once was. It's been dramatically changed. And I think that does lead us to ask the question, why is it that the Christian does not fear death any longer? And hear me, Christian, this day, perhaps it is that throughout this week, you have had some trembling, some fear of death. It has no place in you because death has actually been defeated. And if death has been defeated, and ultimately the thing that makes death so fearful is the fear of judgment, and that too has been dealt with in full in the cross of Christ, we have no reason to fear death. And so my appeal to you before we get into the text this morning is to put to death the fear of death because Christ has actually already defeated it. And hopefully what we will do this morning is to show you how completely he actually did defeat it. That there is no more room for us to fear, to quake at the thought of death. Because on the other side of death, certainly is a judgment. But for the Christian, we see that judgment and we say, yes, judge me. But the thought is not that there is still sin left in me because Christ has dealt with it in full. Instead, we would plead with our Lord, yes, look upon me, but look upon me through the blessed lens of Jesus Christ. And know that on the other side of that judgment, indeed it is paradise. 
It is all rejoicing and all life. And so this morning, it is my hope for us to see this death of death and the death of Christ filled full so that we can go on rejoicing, so that we can go on without fear and trembling, trembling perhaps, but trembling always in joy, knowing that death has been defeated and now we have life and life more abundantly here and now, but also to come. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Romans chapter six. We're gonna start in verse one and make our way through verse 11. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter six, starting in verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we long to see. We long to understand. We long for our belief to inform how we live. And so, Father, this day, will you help us to believe in the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work? Would you help us to see the righteous act that he accomplished for us actually being applied to us? And Lord, not only being applied to us, but all the benefits, all the fruit flow to us through his good hand. And so, Father, I pray this day, help us to see, help us to believe, and Lord, help us in light of our belief to live accordingly. It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, what I'd like to do is take verse 5. And really, we're going to walk through chapter 6, verses 5 through verse 10. But what I really want us to do is take verse 5, and I want us to understand everything that Paul is about to articulate to us from the lens of Romans 6, 5. I am convinced that it is the heading of this passage. The whole purpose that he's laying out for us is really encapsulated perfectly in this simple phrase that he gives us in verse 5. And so if I could, I'd just like to read it again to you. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This simple verse is filled with so much theology, so much doctrine, and perhaps even better yet, so much beauty that we need to take a decent amount of time to evaluate it. And the way that Paul lays this out to us is he gives us the two categories and then he goes back and forth dealing with them through this text. But so let's just take the very first phrase there. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, and then we will go on to, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So let's examine verse five, just this first moment. For if we have been united with him in a death like his. There's a couple of questions that I think we must ask of this text. And the very first one that I come to is who was united with him? And by that, I'm not speaking of the quantity of people. I'm speaking of the quality. Who were the people that have been united to Jesus Christ? 
I mean, what type of person actually gets to say that I have been united to Jesus Christ in a death like his? I mean, you think about this, and oftentimes when we come to the scriptures, we always, for some reason, we look in and we're like, okay, I want to understand who I am in this story. But more often than not, we always think that we're the better person in the story. But for us to truly rejoice at being united with Jesus Christ, it's important that we understand who we were, who we are, that we're actually united to Jesus Christ. It is not as if the righteous man was united to Jesus Christ. The righteous man was not united to Jesus Christ. For if it were the righteous who were united to him, not a single soul would ever be united to the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it seems as though the scripture has made abundantly clear to us up until this point that it is only those who are worthy of condemnation and judgment that will be justified. And those who have been justified have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want us to maybe think about this in this way. This man that we have just examined in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12 and making the way down to 21, this concept of the Adamic man, this one who is under the bondage of sin and death, this one who has fallen and fallen in such a way that he is corrupt in every ounce, every faculty that he possesses is corrupted by sin. So what man is then united to Jesus Christ? Well, there is only one type of man that can be united to Jesus Christ, and it is those of Adam's race. Now, if you're here this day and you haven't had a concept of Adam's race, every single one of us who were born not from a virgin birth are of Adam's race. And if we are born of Adam's race, that means his condemnation, his guilt is my guilt. If we go back up to verse 12, it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, I know this, that I am a sinner because I fell in Adam. That's who I am. My state, my being is one. My essence is one of a sinner. And I look at this and I think, well, who would Jesus be willing to have united to him? And it makes perfect sense to have one who is beautiful, one who is lovely, one who is righteous to be united to him. But that's not at all what we see. Instead, if we're to understand the beauty of this passage, we must understand that those who were united to Jesus Christ in his death were those who were wretched rebels and sinners. We would go all the way back to Romans chapter five, where it says that he loved us while we were yet sinners. And we must say with great joy, it was me. I was the sinner, but praise be to God, he loved me. And if I could break this out for us as, the, as verse six goes on to lay out who is this man, it is those who are of Adam's race. And just to give you a couple of verses that speak to the old man, Ephesians 4.22 says this, to put off your old man, old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Who did Jesus permit to be united with him? Those who were corrupt through deceitful desires. I think Colossians captures it a bit more fully in Colossians 4, 5 through 9. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And I want you to hear this because this is the man who is united to Jesus Christ. Sexually immoral, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This man? This man is united to the king of glory? This man who is corrupt through deceitful desires, the list that simply lays out who he is, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry, is antithetical to who Jesus actually is. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is righteous altogether. And yet not only does he go and permit, but he willingly takes upon this man upon himself. He says, unite him to me. 
this man, this old man. But not only that, the scripture goes on in verse six to say that we, not, uh, we know that our old self, speaking of that Adamic man, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. This body of sin. We think about this concept of a body of sin and it is not so much a reference to a person. Instead, it is a reference to a mass. It is the, the, the concept of all of this wickedness, all of this blob of depravity is united to Jesus Christ. It's laid on him. So this old man, this quality of man, this wicked one who has this mass of sin, this blob of wickedness and trespass and iniquity is laid upon him. He says, lay that on me. And then it goes even further and it says, those who were enslaved to sin. So the one that I'm going to redeem, if I did not redeem him and call him to myself, then he would go on delighting in that which I will die for. This old man, this one who has this massive sin, this one who is enslaved to sin, cannot do anything in and of himself. This is the quality of man that Jesus Christ unites to himself in his death. Now, the reason I make that so clear, the reason I think we really need to grasp that is because I think if we miss this concept, we miss the true love of the cross of Christ. I mean, consider for a moment what you have in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is infinitely lovely. If you would perhaps go back to eternity past with me, the one who was the object of heavenly worship throughout all eternity, condescends, takes on the form of a servant, and then looks at all those who would crucify him, who hated him in their natural state and say, lay all of him on me. Lay all of him on me. Now, if I could ask for just a moment, can you give me a better illustration of love? You know, one of the reasons oftentimes I get hit with the charge that I don't use much illustrations, I'll be honest with you, there's some beauties and, and splendors in scripture that have no other illustration. I cannot articulate this in any other way than to say that Jesus Christ loved sinners and not only came, but took upon their sin on himself. There is no deeper measure of love. There is no illustration that could dare come close to lay out the love of Christ, to take ruined sinners, their old man, their blob of sin and trespass iniquity and their slavery to sin upon himself. This is the love of God. When he would come, when he would descend and dwell among us, he gives us this great infinite display of everlasting love by taking that which he hates most upon himself. So what man is united to him in death? Those who were of Adam's race, those who were wicked, those who were, as Colossians 4 says, sexually immoral, impure, driven by worldly passions and evil desires, those who were covetous, covetous in their ways and idolaters. It is this man that Jesus bore their sin for. It is this man who Jesus aims to reconcile. And so who is it? Well, we see quite clearly that it is this wicked man, but that does lead us to another question because all of this, this old man, this body of sin, our, our slavery to sin, what does then that union with Christ accomplish for us? I want you to notice verse six because verse six does not speak kindly of the old man or the body of sin or slavery to sin. Instead, it speaks in a really liberating way. In verse six, it says, we know, and I want you to emphasize just for a moment that word, know. It is not if, it is not some 
concept or theory. Essentially, what Paul is saying is that those who have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, we know the surety of the salvation that Christ has provided for us. And just for a moment, I do not like the concept of wondering, am I, has Jesus, is he able to save? No, we know he is able to save and able to save to the uttermost. We say with Paul, we know that the old man is dead. We know that that blob of sin is conquered. We know that we are not enslaved to sin any longer. To say anything else is to look at the cross of Christ and assume it insufficient. We say we know, but what do we know? We know that his death has done three great things. And I want to anchor his death going all the way back up to verse 18 of chapter five. Therefore is one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness. What is that one act of righteousness? We have already spoken of it, that it is the full cup of all that Christ has done. It is his perfectly righteous life. It is his laying down of that life for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. But I want us to understand it the way that Paul goes on to articulate in verse six. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Those three major things we must understand. These three, these three horrendous, grotesque, vile things were conquered by the one righteous act of Christ Jesus. Now let's start with that old man. And the old man gets perhaps the most clear language surrounding it. Notice verse six, we know that the, our old self was crucified with him. Crucified with him. You know, we hear this word so frequently that I think we often forget the true hideous nature of crucifixion. Now I am not gonna go into a long spiel of what takes place bodily, but here's what I want you to understand that when Jesus Christ died on that cross, he crucified the old self. Now, what you should be doing as you look to the cross is you should say with great certainty, that is absolutely what I deserve, but you should see there the grotesque nature of what sin actually earns and merits for you. That going back to Colossians again, what is it that sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry, what is it that that merits you? It merits you not only a crucifixion in the sense that you must bodily die for those trespasses. It goes far past that. And it says that you not only need bodily die, but you must bodily live unto eternal death forever. That is the true consequence of the old man. That's what Jesus took upon himself. When we see this old man crucified, we must see there that that is the just condemnation for any and all trespass against the holy God. It is a heinous and it is a violent death and it should be. It should be. The only reason that we could come here and say, oh, crucified, well, that's strong language. If we don't understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin, you have rebelled against the king of glory. The sin, this you little image bearer, go forth and you go forth bearing the image of God all the while profaning it by our wickedness. Yes, most certainly kill it and kill it violently. That is the recompense for such wickedness. The old man must die and praise be to God. The old man in Jesus Christ has died. This old man, this one who is wicked and perhaps it is here, you are in Christ and you think back to that old man. You think that man, that man deserves to die. And perhaps it is that you look inward even now and you think, I still have remnants here of this old man. And you can still say that man needs to die. Well, praise be to God. 
He has died. He has been crucified with Christ. He has been conquered in every fashion and will continue to be conquered by the power of the Spirit unto the bodily resurrection when we will be separated from Him eternally. We know that our old self was crucified with him. He has, in this one righteous act, crucified this old man to himself. We are free from that snare. But then it goes on to say, and with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body of sin. I cannot even fathom the depth, the quantity of my own sin. I mean, sincerely, if I were to be given eternity to work through my own life, to lay out my own sin, to be able to count it in some fashion, if I were given all eternity for that, I would still fail in the task. And the reason is I must have an omniscient mind to know the depths of my own wicked heart. The body of sin, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, well, I still sin today. What, how do you get rid of the body of sin in one righteous act? You crucify it. You nail it to the tree. And when Jesus Christ died, that old man was crucified with him and the body of sin, I want you to notice the language, was brought to nothing. Hear me, Christian. If you be in Christ this day, if you look and you look at the cross of Christ and you say, there is all of my hope, all of my joy, all of my confidence, then you can know this with great certainty. Your sin, as this text says, is brought to nothing. It's empty. I don't even know what to do with that. Like it's gone. It's not there. It's brought to nothing. There is no really deep theological term for this. It's just gone. There is no more. It's brought to nothing. That body of sin that I feel like I'm still filling up is actually empty. And it's so empty that if Satan himself would bring a charge against me at the throne of judgment, God would say, where is it? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? There is no more charges left. It's been brought to nothing. And then it goes on to say, not only am I free from that old man, but I'm the body of sin. The things that I have produced in my life are brought to nothing. Then I have slavery to sin abolished. And so all that bondage that I once had, all of that slavery to sin and slavery to sin, meaning that I cannot not sin, that in everything I do, I go on sinning. I'll think about passages later on, like Romans 14, that makes it really, really clear that anything that is not done in faith is sin. And I'm thinking about my bondage to sin before Christ came and set me free. I couldn't breathe without sinning. Every thought corrupted. Every action, even if it, were, even if it would be considered a moral action in our society, was wicked altogether. Go build a well in Africa. Praise God, but you've done it for wicked purposes, apart from the regenerating work of the Spirit. I need the Spirit of God to work. I need to be released from this bondage that I can live unto God, that I can delight in Him and say, to Him be glory, honor, and praise forevermore. Anything apart from that is wretched and sinful and deserves condemnation and fury. I must be freed. When was I freed? I was freed when Christ bore my sin on the cross. And then He, by His Spirit, came and applied that to me. And from that moment forward, I have not only known that I have been freed from sin snare through Jesus' finished work, but I have experienced that freedom by the Spirit of God. And this one righteous act, this one, this one righteous act, this one work of Christ, he conquered the old man, crucified it, bloodied him on the tree, left him lifeless. 
The body of sin is evaporated. It's gone. It's been drank to the dregs. There's nothing left of my sin. And I'm no longer enslaved to sin any longer. It no longer has a hold on me. I am free. One. One righteous act. And I think the final question of this is, how? I mean, my goodness, like it's a righteous, I, I get that. Like I'm reading, I'm reading Romans 5, I'm seeing verse 18. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. But I'm starting to wonder, like, what's the mechanism there? How is it that all of this is mine? How is it that I can say in this verse that it's Lawson's old self that's been crucified, that my body of sin has been brought to nothing, and that I am free from slavery to sin? And how is it, saint, that you can say the same thing? And you can say it with absolute confidence. I'd go back to verse six. We know. How is this true for me? How is this a reality? What, in what way did he bring this about? And I think there are two verses that really help us understand this in this text. So verse 10 and verse nine, I wanna start with verse 10. It says, it says in verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And I wanna point you back to Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, you know, we spoke of union with Christ last week, especially dealing with it in the spiritual sense of being born again. But my hope is that today we will see that union with Christ means that in a very real, profound way, when Jesus died, I died. And that when Jesus is raised, I raise. That there is a, there is a clear and, and, and logical, consistent way that we see the gospel play out. And it's that union with Jesus Christ is ultimately the means by which I can say that I died to the old self, that the body of sin has been brought to nothing, and that I'm no longer enslaved. In this first phrase, in verse 10, it says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Now, I need to ask you a question. He dies to sin, how? How? Can I, can I just maybe lay out a couple of things? Well, first, we know this. It must not be understood as Jesus ceasing to sin as it is often said of us. I mean, I often in counseling say, brother, sister, you must die to your sin. You must put it off. You must take off the old man and put on the new, die to sin. Well, we know with great certainty when we speak of Jesus Christ, we are not speaking of him ceasing from sinning because he never started. There is no wickedness in him, no sin, no trespass, no iniquity. He is the righteous one. And if he is the righteous one, how can we say that he died to sin? It must be understood as this. It must be understood as Jesus becoming sin for us and dying in our place. This is the way we must understand this blessed verse. When I died, when Jesus died, he died to sin, but it was not his own. It was mine. And I want to give you a couple of verses that I think are really helpful to lay this out for us. First Peter chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. Verse 22 says, he committed no sin. So we know that it certainly cannot be that he died to sin because he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. How did he die to sin? He died to mine. The consequence for my sin, the judgment from God on my sin, Jesus died to at his cross. When he died there, he died to sin. It certainly was not his own. It was for the sins of all the elect of God who would come into everlasting life in him. 
And so we see quite clearly that the death he died, he died to sin. But I want to note, I think really importantly, is this very unique phrase, and it's not one that Paul uses too frequently. And it's this phrase, once for all. And if I could turn your attention, even turn there if you would, to Hebrews chapter 7. I want to show you really three verses in the book of Hebrews that man just scream this for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. And really what I want us to take note of here is that when Paul is using, and the author of Hebrews is using, the language of once for all, he is essentially making an argument for sufficiency. He is saying there is nothing else that needs to be done. If there is anything else that needs to be done, then we would have to look at Jesus Christ on the cross when he says, it is finished and call him a liar. But Hebrews says, Oh, by no means. Let's understand what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 7, 27. It says, we'll start in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. What did Jesus do when he came? He fulfilled the role of high priest perfectly, even to such a degree that a sacrifice no longer needs to be made. And the reason a sacrifice no longer needs to be made is because Jesus' blood is all sufficient to free men from the old man, from the body of sin, and ultimately from slavery to sin. It is indeed once for all. But it seems as though the writer of Hebrews has a little bit of a bone to pick with this concept of once for all, because later on in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and following, it says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, though, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered... How? Once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And I want you to notice this really beautiful phrase, thus securing an eternal redemption. Thus securing. When Jesus paid the debt of sin, he secured an eternal redemption for all those who look to him in faith. Secured. It is a sufficient substitutionary sacrifice. But then he echoes the same language again in Hebrews 9, 25 through 28. He says this, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Where is sin? For the saint of God, we must say, it has been put away. It has been conquered. Jesus died to sin. And I want you to notice verse 28, because I think it actually, 27 and following, because I think it is really important to even more so emphasize the reality of Jesus' sufficient death. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. Why? Why not to deal with sin in his second advent? 
Because he has dealt with it completely in his first. When he comes round two, it's to conquer all his foes. All of his foes will be laid underneath his feet. They will indeed be his footstool, as 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says. But for the sins of the church of God, he dealt with them round one. When he came, when he condescended, when he dwelt among us, when he filled up all righteousness, when he laid down his life for us through that one righteous act, he dealt with our sin forevermore. It is abolished. It is conquered. It has been removed as far as the east is from the west. Where is that body of sin? I can't find it. And more importantly, it seems that God found it on Christ. And he, by his infinite justice, sheathed the sword of that infinite justice in his side. So that I can look around and say, where is the body of sin? On Christ it was laid, and now I have life and life forever. And so what do we understand when it says the death he died, he died to sin once for all? We understand that I am infinitely free from sin snare. It has been conquered. It has been put away. Jesus has died to it, and I in him, I am free from sin snare. Now here is the first great fatal blow against the fear of death. Fear has to do with judgment. Dear saint, where is that which would condemn you? Where is that sin that would lay you in the dust, that would have you cast into the hells of of God? It was laid on Christ. How can I tremble? How can I fear? But then the text goes on. It's not just through this moment, but instead I want us to see this and I want us to see this really clearly because there is this phrase in verse nine of Romans. Romans six, nine says this, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Dear Saint, when you read that, it seems as though what the writer is implying is that death at one point had dominion over him. And that's really interesting to me because we must not understand it as death having a natural right over Jesus because Jesus was without sin and thus death had no rightful claim of him. Though time and time and time again, even the clear picture of Satan coming to tempt him in the wilderness, he was without sin. But the whole purpose was if he sins, death has rightful claim over him. And if death has rightful claim over him, he cannot die in the place of sinners. And so we see Jesus perfectly fulfill all righteousness, being made like his brothers in every way, yet without sin, so that he can willingly go under the dominion of death. Now, here's how we must understand this. It must be understood as Jesus placing himself under the dominion of death, so as to destroy death forever. And I want us to notice John 10 here. John 10, verse 17 through 18. John 10, 17 says, for this reason, the father loves me. Notice this, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. His death was a willing death. Death had no rightful claim on him. He went and he laid down his life under the dominion of death for one great purpose. Going on in verse 18, it says, no one takes it for me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And Calvin says this quite brilliantly. He seems to imply that death once ruled over Christ. And indeed, when he gave himself up to death for us, he in a manner surrendered and subjected himself to its power. It was, however, in such a way that it was impossible that he should be kept bound by its pains so as to succumb to or be swallowed up by them. And I want you to hear this phrase. He, therefore, by submitting to its dominion, as it were, for a moment, destroyed it forever. Where is the fear of death? It seems in this text, not only is the thing that would cause me to fear death, that is sin, has been done away with in the cross of Christ, it seems as though even further, death itself has been destroyed forever. And perhaps it is that you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, Lawson, there are still people that die. I understand that. But for the saints of God, we must go back to what Jesus says in John when he looks at Mary and Martha in the midst of their brother's death and say, Jesus is the resurrection and life. And those who are in him live and they live eternally in a spiritual sense. But secondly, they will live eternally in a bodily sense. There will be a bodily resurrection as we'll see here in a moment. But if we could finish just this first point, sorry. Notice what Romans 6, 7 says. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And I'm a little angry with the translators on this one because the word set free actually isn't there. The whole premise of this verse is for the one who has died has been justified from sin. Same word that he uses in Romans 3. Justified from sin. Now, I love this language because it's always declaration. Essentially, it's the gavel falling. And so how can we know that we have been set free from sin? Because Jesus died in my place. I am justified. I am separated, removed from sin. It no longer has a snare on me. I'm actually loosed. And not just loosed temporarily, but I'm loosed as it were in the courts of heaven. God has released me. God has freed me from sin. It no longer has bondage. It has no longer the right to produce fear in me and that fear of death. Why? Because Jesus has borne the wrath of God for me. There is no wrath left for me. I must always be understanding death the way that Jesus lays it out for us is that death is not, if you be in Christ, a removal of just body from soul. It's something deeper. It's removal of separation, being removed from God himself. But in Christ, that cannot be done. Because sin has been removed from me. And if sin has been removed from me, we will see here in a moment that I am now everlastingly alive to God. So if we could maybe conclude this point. If we have been, if you have been united to Christ, you have been united to him in a death like his. If you have been united with Christ in a death like his, then you have been justified from sin. That is, you are profoundly and truly free from sin. Oh, if we could grasp this reality, how differently our lives would look. Sin would come and entice you and we could look at it almost laughingly and say, I'm dead to you. You have no right nor claim over me. And even when we do stumble and fall, we know this, its consequence has been dealt with. As a matter of fact, let's just even consider a couple of questions in regard to this. Can you fill up the body of sin again? I mean, my goodness, for those of us who are in Christ, we look to Jesus and we say, there the body of sin was brought to nothing. And then it seems as though in my life, I'm like dripping sin still into this cup that Jesus drank, but it's always empty. Like I keep pouring in sin. I still rebel. I still fall. And I'm pouring in this sin, this body of sin. It's always empty. 
There's, you can't actually fill it back up. Why? Because when Jesus drank the body of sin that we speak of in Romans 6, he drank it all past, present, and future. He took into account the sins that you would commit after you were converted. He paid them in full. The cup is, as it were, always empty. And then perhaps you would think as you fall, as you stumble in sin, can you be sold under sin again? No, your master will not permit it. He is far stronger than your former master. Who will pluck you from the Father's hand? John 10 goes on to say that not a single thing can remove you from the hand of the Father. When you were bought, when you were ransomed from that wicked, cruel master of sin and death, you were brought under this glorious reign of grace and no one dares enter that camp to steal what is the Lord's. You are safe and secure. You cannot be sold again under sin. Can you die under sin again? The answer is resounding no. You cannot die under sin again. Isn't it glorious, the justice of our God? Because he's executed you in the cross of Christ. He's paid your debt in the cross of Christ. When Jesus was in that darkness for three hours, drinking the cup of God's wrath, he was drinking yours if you be in Christ this day. And so we would have to ask, can I die again? Only if God is unjust. But he is not. There is no double jeopardy here. He is always just. The Lord of all the earth, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And to kill the one who Jesus died for again would be a great, great violation of justice. But instead we see that the death we die now is very different. And I think there is a final point point here. Can you continue living as the old man? And I think here again is the resounding no. As a matter of fact, it seems as though this text is sandwiched between two objections to continuing in sin. In Romans 6, 1, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to it still live in it any longer? Then again, in verse 15, it says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it is not only a future hope, but it is a present power to live free from sin and death. It no longer has a snare on us. Indeed, we cannot live as we once did. And perhaps to bring this point to a complete closure, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 makes it really clear. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made his footstool, a footstool for his feet. Verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Isn't that such domineering language? He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You know, it's interesting. You actually can't fit anything else into that verse. There is no room. All time they are perfected. Perfected means actually perfected. There is no up or down any longer. That's the complete work of Jesus Christ in his death. When he laid down his life, when he made atonement, he actually perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And brothers and sisters, if you be in Christ, this verse speaks of you. Now, I have a second point. The second point is this. So Romans chapter, four, Romans chapter 6, we looked, at, we, we looked at verse 5 at the beginning. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, I mean, this is good news. We've been united to Jesus Christ in a death like his. My goodness, my soul soars. It's like I died with him. And since I died with him, I'm now dead to death. 
It no longer has right. It no longer has claim. It has no reason to cause me to tremble any longer. If anything, my soul should soar at the thought of being free from this continued lasting old man that will go in the ground never to sin again. I should rejoice just right there. But what's interesting about this verse is it doesn't stop there. Instead, it goes on and it goes on to make an argument not only for union in his death, but a logical, a logical conclusion that if we are united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly, oh, what a good word, certainly, confidence. Oh, I love the Christian faith. It's filled with confidence and glory. There is no ifs, there is no ands. It is filled with no's and certainty. And here we see that if we have been united with him in a death like his, if we know that our old self was crucified, that the body of sin is brought to nothing and that I'm freed from slavery to sin, then I can know with the same certainty that I will be raised like him. Now, Last week, we spoke of the spiritual resurrection that comes in the life of the Christian. When you are united to Christ in baptism, there is a new life that erupts within you. That is not what we speak of this day. We speak of the fulfillment of that glory, not just the conversion of the soul, but the conversion of the body. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, my soul has been converted and my body will be. I will live everlastingly unto him. So when we look at this, what is the nature of the resurrection that he is speaking of? It is not making reference to just the spiritual life of the believer. It is making reference to the future glorified body. And my goodness, I know that I harp on this, but we must remain convinced of the bodily resurrection from the dead. It is the hope of the Christian life. The whole man is redeemed. I am free from sin in that spiritual sense. But even more so than that, when Jesus died to sin, he died to it in his body, which means that when he died to it in his body, he died to it for me. My body will be free from this. I know this because Jesus died to it at the cross. I have been freed, which means that I will be raised and I will be raised like him. So what's his resurrection life like? First, we know this, that it is forever free from sin. There is no corruption that could dare take over that glorified state of our Lord. He is righteous altogether and he is righteous altogether forevermore. And when we be raised from the grave, we will be righteous forevermore. That glorious fruit, the righteousness of Christ that we speak of in a spiritual sense now, when I stand before him on judgment day, I will stand there clothed in Jesus' righteousness truly and bodily. This flesh, this frail, feeble thing will be raised imperishable. The, the death that still reigns in it, that mortality will not be raised mortal like Lazarus. It will be raised immortal like Jesus. I have a glorious bodily resurrection that I am certain of. And so what can I say? I know this, that the life that Jesus was raised to was a life that death has no dominion over. If you be in Christ, you look forward with certainty to the day that death has no dominion over you. When you rise up from that grave, and this will be an actual scene, you will look back at a grave that has no power. It has taken you once and it will never take you again. If you be in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are united with him in death, then you are, will be united with him in a resurrection like his. Life and life, all life. Now, I think it is important for us to go back and to remember who these men were. I mean, consider for a moment, we're, we're looking at this and we're saying, oh, praise be to God. These are the ones that Jesus bore. He, he allowed himself to be united with these wicked people. 
I mean, consider for again, if we, if we just go back to Romans 6, verse 5 and following, we see the old man, we see the body of sin, and we see the enslaved. So I think there is another question that we could ask is, who was united with him in, a, in his resurrection? It's these same guys. It's these same guys. It's those who are of Adam's race. It's those who are under the tyranny of sin and death, that wicked reign, that enslaving reign, that tyrannical slave master that was over us. It's, I, I'm this guy. This guy who's being raised was that old man. And if I could just go back and read to you who is being raised, I'm being raised and I'm the sexually immoral, impure passion uh, driven by all types of fleshly passions. I have evil desires. I'm a coveter. I'm a coveter and I'm an idolater. And this is the guy who's raised from the dead. Why is this man raised from the dead? Because this man's dead. All that's left is that glorious work of the Spirit giving life to that mortal body. That old man has been brought to nothing. And so what's really interesting about this is, I should say that this is the man raised, but that is not the case. The old man is dead, the new man, the new man that is fashioned not as the man of dust, but as the man of heaven. He lives and he lives free from sin and not only free from sin, all of his sins have been abolished in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we stand filled with life and all life. But I think that is leads us to one final point. What is it then? What does Christ's resurrection accomplish for those who have been united with him? I mean, what's the end game here? I mean, the end game in his death is to lay the old man in the, in the dust, to remove the body of sin, to free us from slavery to sin and, and to have us live. But where are we to live? Where are we to live? Well, the scripture goes on to say in verse nine, it says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Notice verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The end game. The end game is heaven in its truest sense. If you go to Ephesians 2, there is this rather just simple phrase that I think we often read through. As we read through Ephesians 2, we're captured by all the glories that we see there. And my goodness, what great glories we see in Ephesians 2. We read through this and we see the power of God to raise dead men to life. We see them changed and changed forevermore. But if you look at verse 7, there is a so that. There is a purpose in the bodily resurrection. There is a purpose in the endless life that we live unto God. And it says this, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is the end game? The end game is in that new resurrected glorified body for God to be able, make us able to enjoy the riches of his kindness forevermore. So at the beginning of this verse, I was an old man deserving of wrath and fury. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath completely. I have been freed from the snare of death. And I think if I am freed from the snare of death, then I must look at death and no longer tremble. I must be free from it. I must no longer quake when I consider the end of my temporal, mortal, perishable life. Instead, I must rejoice knowing this, that when my body is laid in the ground, that old man that lays there will never rise again, but a new man will. And that new man, that imperishable, immortal body will be raised to enjoy God forever. I think of that simple question that's asked in the Westminster Confession of Faith. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We can do neither in our natural state. But praise be to God. He will give us that glorified body, not like Lazarus, but like the Lord Jesus Christ's body. And I will then be able to enjoy him forever.
Let's pray together. Father, we ask this day, give us rejoicing. Lord, even as we look now to our natural selves, Lord, not natural, but born again, certainly, but we still taste that old man, would you remind us, Lord, that he is dead? Lord, would you even go so far as to remind us that that body of sin, Lord, even though that we continue to sin, it seems as though this cup would never be empty, but Lord, we are reminded that the cup was empty to the cross, that all of my sin was laid on him, that Jesus died to my sin, and I am free from it forevermore, that all I have now is life and all life. And Lord, would you even give us the great confidence to know, to have certainty, to boast, if you will, in the future bodily resurrection, the power of God to save not just soul, but body as well. Oh, how great our Redeemer to redeem the whole man. And so, Father, we ask this day, remove from us the fear of death. Show us Christ conquering it, stamping it out underfoot, our mighty King triumphing over death. And Lord, may we live. May we live now unto him. May we look forward to living unto him. Lord, may we taste the immeasurable riches of your kindness to us now in Christ. And may we look forward to the day when every tribe, tongue, and nation will go celebrating that we have experienced the kindness of our God and King and the Lord Jesus Christ forevermore.